The idea of a sustainable kitchen is simultaneously alluring and intimidating, not the least of which because as interest in this subject has grown, an entire host of products have ironically cropped up to feed on our lack of confidence and self-questioning when it comes to the world of ethical sustainability. What's kind of funny about a sustainable kitchen is that really, by not buying products and just saving your money, you kind of automatically end up in the most sustainable avenue. It doesn't have to be backbreakingly expensive. There is a type of sustainability that is, well, sustainable. And that is what Allison and I talk about here in this episode. We are also going to address some of the reasons why we think it is so important to work towards a sustainable kitchen and some of the practical tips we used to achieve this goal. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen Podcast with Allison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea living on a newly created family farm in Northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Good morning, Alison. Good afternoon, Andrea. How nice are you? to talk to you again. <laughs> nice to talk to you. I'm very good. Yeah, it's well and truly summer here and I'm warm, very warm, which is nice. How are uh, you? Jealous. <laughs> it's, um, we just finally barely began spring. Um, as oh. of this recording time, it is the 7th of June and we it just mm. warmed up a few days ago. So... Yeah, on the weekend, we had a a long weekend of rain, and we were alerted mm. to the fact that we would get more inches of rainfall on the weekend than we did during all the month of May, which is significant because Gosh. in May, it rained every single day. <laughs> wow. So we got a lot of wow. rain. It literally, the storm uh, at one point came down so hard, it, it dug a trench down our driveway. <laughs> Like a huge Gosh. trench. And how are the birds with that? How how are your turkeys and your chickens with all the rain? Uh, the chickens don't love it. They just seem to mostly sit inside or the ones that roam around the yard sit underneath the trucks, <laughs> just staring mm, really okay. out at the rain. <laughs> um, but the turkeys don't really seem to be bothered by weather conditions it doesn't seem to matter if it's mm. snowing or raining they just kind of stand around in their yard and look at each other and then the ducks <laughs> absolutely love it they're yeah, out there flapping they love it. Yeah. waving their tails and <laughs> so nice fun to nice. see all so what about you when you're feeding them is it really muddy and are you falling over <laughs> so funny you say that um <laughs> yeah it is really muddy um I haven't fallen in a while, but yesterday I was out there uh, with Nicole and showing her how to do the birds and everything. And um, Adelaide came up and and I didn't want her to go in the pen, but she wanted to go in the pen. So I was like, okay, well, I'll put her in the pen. And I didn't tell her I didn't want her in the pen. And so I put her in the mm. pen and then she instantly fell on her face. And I was like, okay. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Yeah, it's pretty squishy, like 
just the ground up there is kind of spongy a little bit. So, um, oh, it's really dry but, here. Yeah, not not so much here, not so much here. Mm, mm. But that's that's life. Um, did yeah, you indeed? <laughs> did you eat already before we got together? Yeah, I did. Oh, good. I had um, I had a mixed bag for lunch today. I Ooh. had some mackerel. And then some chard, which we got at the farmer's market. There seem to be two types of chard at the moment, one with really big white stems and one with kind of slender stems that looks a bit more like spinach. Hmm. Gable prefers the latter, so we had quite a lot of that for lunch. And I like to, um, I just boiled it, um, and I like to squeeze lemon juice and have olive oil on the top of it. And then I had two different types of bread, one spelt sourdough with a barley scald so that was nice and kind of soft and squidgy and then I had a little bit of my rye Borodinsky sourdough which is a really sweet bread with a really large percentage rye scald so all the sugars of the rye come out and it's got molasses in it and it's dense but it's um it's really a soft crumb really tasty I had butter on both of those and some sauerkraut Yum. Really, really nice. Have you had breakfast? No. So your mackerel sounds really good. Um, mm. But I was going to make a sort of a version of a dish called la Lazy Vreniki. That's a dish mm. that I was introduced to when my sister and I spent the summer in Russia with her friends. And oh my goodness, if you want to eat good food, just go to Russia. It's like amazing. Yeah. Um, I agree with you on that one. <laughs> when I went there, I... I had to. I had to write about it all. The food was so amazing. Oh, you had to was, write about I was it. Just That's blown away. Better. Yeah. When I came home, I was like, I have to write this all down. I, yeah, I cannot yeah. forget this. It, yeah. it was absolutely wonderful. So tell me about this dish. Okay. So, um, if you've ever had vreniki, it's kind of a. I don't know if you had it when you were there, but it's kind of like a. Mm. I don't know, like a dough with a filling. So a lady. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Le- yeah, and they use their that cheese called tvarag which is like a quark or like a white, like a soft white farmer's cheese kind of. Mm -hmm. So I hope I'm saying the names right. I'm just saying how I remember that they said it there. But um, the, I remember that cheese distinctly. Like I remember that it was the first night that we, like we flew into Moscow, we stayed there a couple of days and then we took a smaller plane to uh, Volgograd and then um, like Marshutka's, all the way to the house and then they served us like this russian feast i mean a feast like my sister mm-hmm. and i were trying to eat at least a little bit of each thing because you know the yeah. um babushkas were like begging us to eat and we're like oh, like we were so full we were dying but we we're just trying to like <laughs> keep poking it in <laughs> um and I remember the cheese, like the texture and the flavor. It was just stunning. And um, I I just remember feeling like all the food there was so real and it just tasted so real. And it was so um, just uh, flavorful. And I guess maybe when you think about the book, Chewing the Fat, how they say they missed the, you know, the real food, it maybe was the comparison of like supermarket food to um, real food. (laughs) yeah. might have been standing out to me um so lazy vreniki is like where if you make the dough and then you mm. roll into a little log and you cut it up and you kind of boil it 
So, just ah, so then, okay. um, you can serve it in like, like the way I was served, it was like in a sort of a sour cream sauce. So, mm-hmm. I was looking online trying to see how people accurately make that, and I couldn't even find anybody making it. So maybe it was just something that the family mm-hmm. I was staying with did. I don't know, but mm-hmm. I, I just, I tried making a sauce last night just to see if I could do it. So I just melted a little bit of butter and then just put some sour cream in the pan and kept whisking it together and it made the perfect sauce. So that's how I'll do it for breakfast. Yeah. So just, just like um, poaching the, what's inside them. What's inside the bread. Um, so the farmer's cheese, it, it seems like there's, uh, when I, I, again, it's one of those things where it's like, well, I'm kind of making it the way I was shown. Let me look online and see Mm. if I can find a real recipe. And then I looked online and I was like, okay, there's like so many different ways. <laughs> so I don't mm. really know if there's a right way. Maybe somebody who's familiar with Ukrainian or Russian um, cuisine could tell me if there's a right or wrong way. But um, it maybe it's one of those things where every family does it a little bit different. Yeah, um, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, so some people use cottage cheese because, you know, unless you have like a, a Russian market, I don't know if you would see Tvarag on the store. Dvorak, mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember how they said it. I remember, I remembered the name because when they said it, I kept thinking it sounded like the composer, Dvorak. <laughs> uh-huh. So yeah. the name stuck in my head because of that. Yeah. Um, but when I look on it online, it looks like um, it's spelled kind of like Dvorak. <laughs> so Dvorak, I don't mm, know. Okay. Somebody from Russia is probably on the other end of this, like falling someone someone please tell us yeah Yeah, please tell us please tell us us. we like to learn (laughs) yeah so I made a pierogi dough last night which is what I was going to use for it um Mm. it's just so the one that Tiffany showed me when she was out here so um I just beat like maybe eight smallish eggs and then I put in a cup of warm water Mm. and beat those together and teaspoon of salt beat that together and then I mixed in you can add, if you want, uh, like a tablespoon of sourdough start, and then um, mm-hmm. I mixed in six cups of flour and then just kind of kneaded it together and then just left it mm-hmm. overnight. So in the morning, then I'll just, you could either shape it and fill them or just mm-hmm. um, roll into little logs. But I think the most accurate way that people were making online that I was seeing was they're mixing the cheese and the flour and eggs together um Ah. but that wasn't the way I had seen it so I didn't have that in my head so I wasn't prepared with the cheese even though I already knew I wanted to make the lazy vanity yeah so when we have the cow then I'll be able to make or when when she's in milk again I'll be able to make some so that should be and then you boil them after that yeah you can you could boil them in broth if you wanted um Mm. the pierogies I made last night were this dough but um, filled with um, Tiffany and we made a whole bunch of pierogies and froze them raw. So right. we had filled them with um, like potatoes and sausage and, you know, just things that you'd put inside of like yeah. a pasty or something. Pasty. Sorry. Pasty. Yeah. It sounds delicious. It's one of those um, carbohydrate with contents type things that yeah. seems like every culture has their versions of them you know like uh, ravioli or burrito or wherever you go there's something yeah. like just delicious like that um and 
you can fill it with like a sauerkraut. You definitely serve it with sauerkraut or like cooked cabbage or, you know, all, all the delicious. I want to come to your house for breakfast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish I had a cabbage right now because I would cook some to go with this for breakfast. I do have sauerkraut yeah. though, so I'll have that. But um, all, all the Eastern European cuisine is just so uh, attractive to me. Mm. And so I wonder if I have some like Eastern European genetics or something, because it's just like, yeah, maybe it's like, to me, it's the ultimate just satisfaction and comfort food. And um, it just feels like uh, resonant. So maybe. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I um, it made me think about Naomi from um, almost uh, bananas. Who's I was thinking about her too. <laughs> we interviewed about Slovakian traditions several episodes back, and um, hopefully yeah. getting her onto the Patreon sometime to talk us through some traditional mm, Slovakian dishes, more. which would be wonderful. I remember eating that stuffed bread when I was in Russia, and I'm guessing it would have been boiled mm. because I remember the kind of sheen on it. And I didn't know when I sat down again at one of these tables that just was absolutely chocker with food, like some medieval banquet. Yeah. I I didn't know that they had stuff inside. And so it was a real surprise when I bit in and then there was this kind of different different fillings. And I remember one with mushrooms in and, and some herb. Oh, Maybe it was tarragon. Really it was delicious. And I remember there, um, interesting because, you know, we, we did a fats episode recently and I'm totally obsessed with lard now I remember there being um big um saucers full of cubed bits of pork fat on the table and they had homemade vodka in plastic bottles and tiny shot glasses and we had to take a bit of this pork fat and eat it and then have a vodka shot um and I just remember being just completely like terrified mm -hmm. just like, oh my gosh that's just a cube of fat you know <laughs> I was this was like I don't know before I met Rob like maybe 15 years ago I was still working for Microsoft so yeah a long time ago yeah um yeah more like 20 years ago and of course I was just terrified of fat <laughs> and right. I actually ha I had some I was like this is just this is just pig fat. It's just they're eating pig fat. Um, so that was interesting. And there was fish and all that. And I also remember the samovars and the tea and how they would get berries that they'd foraged and smash these berries up in the bottom of a cup with sugar and then put the tea from the samovar over the top of it. Mm. And how absolutely oh. delicious it was. The, oh my gosh, the food that I ate when I was in Russia was. Uh, yeah it's off Absolutely it's amazing. like unbelievable I don't know I don't I don't know maybe I'm just not in the know but like why are they not more famous for their food you know like France is mm -hmm. famous for their food or whatever mm -hmm. um like oh my gosh it's just it's unbelievable and everybody's just whacking it out like it's so casual like yeah, it's whatever you know this is just what we eat yeah like, this is amazing <laughs> it is Dara Dara Goldstein who um is a Russian food specialist oh yeah um but yeah, have I have book? one of her books. Oh, I want that. Book. Yeah, I have one of her books, Beyond the North Wind, which is very I nice. <laughs> and I would like to get more books. Which is, I, I would like yeah. to get more, lots of things. So, but yeah. But you know, it, Alison, I know what you and I would both mm. want to do. And I guess maybe the time mm. for this was when we were, I don't know how old you were when I went to think I was 16 or 17, but like that's mm. the time to do this. But um, 
I'll, I'll get, I'll get a book because that's what I have. That's my option right now. But I, I just want to go there again and just sit and watch because that yeah, I really right. feel like that was how I was like, I, I went to Russia, not knowing much. I'd had a Russian pen pal for a few years and I met her when I went there. And, you know, so I would read things about Russia and was studying it and was trying to learn the language and things like mm. that. But, mm. um, there's just so much about a culture, even if you read about it, like, have you ever read about your own culture? And they're like, British people usually do this. And you're like, oh yeah, I guess we do. I never really thought about it. But mm. when you actually go there, it's so different. And I just want to go there and watch, yeah. watch the grandmothers as they're working and see yeah. how they, like, I will never forget when we were going to go to Kislovodsk and it's a 24 hour train ride from where we were. Mm. And mm. so the babushkas were making um, just remember tiny kitchen tiny tiny kitchen um they made like hundreds of um peroshkis. so like you go into the kitchen and every surface was just piled with them all these different kinds and i was like how did they just like they just whacked it out you know like just did it yeah. <laughs> I'm like how this is so amazing and they're so delicious and we basically lived on them for the next 24 hours until we you know got off the train um but like I'll never forget that they were I I when I was eating them I was like I never want to eat anything else again this is so wonderful like it's just like a lukewarm paroshki on a train uh where you can't hear yourself think and where you're sleeping yeah in a car with yep. 40 other people. I remember that. <laughs> we must have done really the same thing. It's so weird because I, I was on a train. I was going down to Volgograd. There were, you no know, way. We sleeping on something other. that was supposed to be a bed, but it was hard. Yeah. <laughs> and there were so many other people in the carriage. And, and I didn't sleep at all. And then at every train stop, there were just people selling like, you know, berries and things they'd made through the oh. window. And Yeah, I never saw those. Absolutely wonderful. But you're, you're laying on the train. It's, it's, it feels like the real train, right? It's like tick, 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 tick. And, and as you're laying there trying to fall asleep and, and like you're going through like Russia. You're not, you're not in a city like you're going through the countryside and then so every once in a while then you see like lights kind of flash 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 through the slats and you're like wow where am I like what 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 century did I transport to and I remember looking out the window sometimes and just seeing basically like you know broken brick buildings and I was like like am I in 1942 right now like where am I I'm stopping at train stations where there was nothing like I could see nothing yeah there's a platform and like a bombed building (laughs) like where am I yeah it was so amazing like one of the like definitely most incredible trips I feel very grateful to have had that experience because it changed it changed me yeah I agree way that I agree that it you know I'm a different person now because of going there Mm -hmm. for the months that I did and doing what I did there and um yeah, yeah, I'm very grateful that I, I, I would that I would go again in a heartbeat. Oh man, it's just so so amazing, mm. Um, mm. and so much history to see in like the museums. We went to all kinds of museums and uh, like Orthodox churches, and um, mm. of course in Moscow, you know this all the yes all the things to see there. And yeah. Anyways, so that's breakfast. yeah. We've got a podcast <laughs> to record. <laughs> we do. Oh, was this not it? Okay, take us so, out. No, take us in. <laughs> so, um, we are talking today about how to make your kitchen more sustainable, and 
This episode kind of follows on from one we did last year, which we titled Quitting Supermarkets. But we're taking a slightly different take with this episode. And the kind of, the reason, one of the reasons why we wanted to um, kind of go back into this area is because certainly lots of people contact me um, about trying to live more sustainably. And I feel how much they yearn to do as much as they possibly can to um, be the change that, that they want to see in the world. And I feel that all the time. I look around me and I see what we're doing to the earth and how we're living. Mm. And I want to change it. I really do. And I feel like we can, you know, from our kitchens... Mm. We can, through what we do every single day, make a huge difference to right. the impact that we have on the world. And, of course, if everyone were to do that, um, not necessarily to do it 110%, but just to do it like 30 40 50%, the change that, that could happen around us would be staggering. Um, and so focusing on the kitchen and how to make the kitchen more sustainable seemed like a, a really good topic to dig into a little bit. If that's, um, yeah, does that make sense, Andrea? Oh, yeah. No, I, I am with you 100%. Yeah, cool. Okay, so where I wanted to start from was um, the essence of it, as I see, is to look back. And we have not always been so destructive and extractive and disposable in our habits and in our kitchens and so let's look back at what our grandmothers and our great-grandmothers did let's learn if we if we you know we never could see what our grandmothers did I wish like like you wished you know you could go back to Russia now and see those mm -hmm. grandmothers cooking I remember being with my grandmother when I was very young um, and seeing her in her very different kitchen you know with a with mm -hmm. a coal stove and and it just was so different and oh. I wish that I had learned more from her and questioned her more mm -hmm. so you know if you don't have access to what your grandmothers and great-grandmas did we can learn what they did yeah let's remember how people lived before we had the ability to ship foods literally across the entire world on a whim all the time as normal and mm -hmm. learn from how the people who came before us who had to respect the land because it was what sustained them, how they did that. And I know we often say, and I know you say, Andrea, that, you know, we've got all this technology and ability to learn from the past now, and yet we, we've taken that and kind of run with it into a place that's not sane anymore. And we don't have to go back. You say this better than me. So you say, so this is kind of your thing and you say it really well. Explain what you mean better than I can. <laughs> well, I just feel like if you say, I, we talked about this on the easy way just a little bit, but if you say something like, oh, yeah. yeah, I just, you know, I, I want to be able to, to make, make my bread at home. Like, oh, so you, so you think women shouldn't have any rights, huh? Okay. Um, you, you don't think women should be able to own property? Huh? Huh? Um, or, you know, oh, I just want to, um, 
um, put arnica on my bruise. So, so you think we should all die of smallpox, huh? You know, it's like, no, <laughs> I don't know why we have this idea that everything's like, you either live all in the medieval world or you live all in the modern world. I believe we can have the best of both worlds. We can take the wisdom like we do as kind of the theme of the podcast of the ancient days, if you will, and sort of combine mm-hmm. it with the modern technology and see how we can find um, a better way to live. Mm. Yeah, and thankfully, due to that technology, we have the ability to learn from other cultures mm-hmm. and learn how people and and learn how people did live. And, and we can take that information and bring it into our kitchens now, our modern world kitchens. Right. So I feel like really at the heart of this whole how can we be sustainable in our kitchen is local produce because right. previously our ancestors would have had to survive on what the land around could give them and they would have to put the farming practices in that would sustain that land, otherwise they wouldn't have any food the following year or the following year. And therefore, they treated the land with respect because it's what kept them alive. And it feels to me now that we've got it all upside down, that our land, our food is not coming from the land around us. And in addition, we're using the land that is around communities to grow things that wouldn't have naturally grown there. So, you know, vast tracts of land in other parts of the world are being used to grow corn or soy or, or any type of monocrop or even to, you know, put loads of cattle together in a, in a feeding system in order to send that food around the world. And it, it just seems absolutely crazy to me that, that as a society, we've chosen to do that, that we think that that's sensible. And if you look to what the land around you can naturally provide that's going to be different for everyone, you know. So where I live now in Italy, this land can provide slightly different things to the land where I was raised in the UK. And the, the, the land in the UK can provide different things to the land in Australia or in Russia or where you are or in Argentina. And I know, or I have a guide for me here in Italy to know what the land around me can naturally provide by looking back at what people who lived on this land around me used to live in, live with, you know, the foods they used to make. So I know, for example, that pecorino, sheep's milk cheese, has a long history in here, around me in Tuscany. I know that pig products and salami has a long history. I know that greens and forage greens and bitter greens have been used for centuries And so I can pretty much guess that this land can sustain that type of food and it can naturally be grown around here. I I was talking to Ellie from Ellie's Every Day recently and she's given me a fabulous education on the the ancestral food that was in Australia before colonisation. And I think this is another great example of it because... Australia and New Zealand raise a lot of sheep and export now a lot of meat um, around the world, sometimes live. But before colonisation, there were no hooved animals in Australia at all. There were other type of animals. There were other type of grasses because there were no hooved animals. There There was other type of food. And a lot of the Australian landscape 
has been decimated because of what we have put onto that land that doesn't naturally go there. And I look around and I see organisations like Eat Lancet who are who would put a diet forward saying, oh, the ideal diet for climate is that we eat 15% of this beef and 6% of these beans and 35% of this type of green, kind of segregating everything. And I just think it's crazy because how can you say to someone who lives in Korea that they should be eating the same food that someone as Ireland is eating to the same that someone in the Faroe Islands is eating or in Iceland? Because yeah. what we should be eating is what's around us and what we can get <laughs> into our house with less transport, less packaging, less destruction of the soil. It just, it seems completely like a no-brainer to me. So really it's to look, what I'm saying here is to look around you at what the land around you can provide and reap that and if you're not sure what the land around you can naturally provide, then go back and find out what that land can naturally provide. Look around you for, for stars who are saying, you know, this is what this land can provide and I can do this without mm -hmm. destroying the soils. And, and go follow them. Go buy food from them. Go to their restaurants, you know. Um, we're, we're, we have the possibility to choose that to supply our kitchens and if every home kitchen was to choose local food, then suddenly we wouldn't be shipping food around the world. We wouldn't be creating an incredible amount of pollution. The plastic use would just go through the floor because we wouldn't have to put things on supermarket shelves that have been sent from goodness knows where. And we wouldn't be pushing populations off land to put monocrops of some particular type of food in their place and making them starve and die out um yeah so eat try to find what the land around you can actually provide and use that in your kitchen I think that is the absolutely central thing to making your kitchen more sustainable and um, we will go on later on to talk about other things you can do in your kitchen to make it more sustainable but it's my belief that this is at the heart of it. Would you like more support to help you eat, cook and live ancestrally? If so, come and check out our community at patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast. We've got so many goodies over there that will help guide, inspire and support you in this journey we're taking together. There's our exclusive podcast where Andrea and I talk more intimately about what's happening in our kitchens and lives there are so many after-show bonuses, downloads, extra audios and resources. We have a forum where you can ask and answer questions. And we even host a monthly chat where we get together and talk all the ancestral kitchen things. We love cooking and eating this way. And this community and library of resources is what we would have wanted when we started out. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast to get started. Andrea, do you want to jump in? Because I'm just going on and on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I started listening to Nourishing Traditions audio, audiobook yesterday 
I don't know if you, if the listeners, um, whoever's listening to this, if you heard our book episode, then I said that was one of, I've read the book with my eyeballs, but now I wanted to read it with my earballs. And Mm. it's, she mentions in the introduction how strange it is that the governments or diet dictocrats, whoever out there that's promoting a specific diet seems to have this idea that the same food would be perfect for everybody. When she says, you know, there's all kinds of things that might affect the foods that you eat, ranging from where you live to even genetic components, like how your body is made to take that food in. And it's making me think as you're talking about how we ship food around the world, well, we ship each other around the world too now. Yeah, you know, you're in true. Italy, right? Um, my yeah. my ancestors came from England, you know, I, mm. but who knows where they came before that? Like, mm. so we ourselves have moved and I, I can get that there is a component to wanting the food that, you know, m- maybe you your roots were in Vietnam, but you live in Nebraska and you're like, I want rice. Like I need rice. Like I get it. Um, so I, I can see how there, there's definitely the challenges to this since we ourselves have migrated around the world. Yeah, Thank but, you for saying that. It's true. Yeah. But also I get that, um, like I'm not growing coffee beans here in Washington. So what, what we end up doing is we selectively take things that don't grow from around here, but that we want to enjoy. And we, mm. you know, those basically have to get shipped in. So then you have, then that comes down to like, okay, let me see how I can find like an ethical supplier or somebody who's growing it ethically there and somebody who's the ethical middleman and all these things. So, mm. um, you know, that ends up being more work, but uh, for for us in our case that we want to enjoy coffee and it doesn't grow in this climate so we have to get it bought in from somewhere then it was worth the effort you know so yeah I think that um you know traditionally there's there's been a trade in spices and things like that luxury for goods, sure you know down the spice yeah spice route for course. many 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 centuries and and you know if you think about the weight of spices or coffee or tea in your kitchen compared to the weight of the staples that you oh, use every day your, the meat that yeah, you get you know gross. it's a very small percentage and you know even if all our households changed to 50 percent local food mm-hmm. it would make a, a staggering difference to the world yeah um so yeah I sometimes have to remind myself not to be so um single-minded about it because <laughs> yeah you know that the the luxury foods then and there are companies who do do things ethically and do look after the land and do look after their workers and you know there, there are even companies there's a a, a sales ship company that ships coffee and chocolate that's been processed on site so the money's gone mm-hmm. to the workers yeah. and then uses sailing power manned mm-hmm. by people who love sailing to bring this produce mm-hmm. back over to Amsterdam and Europe. Yeah. And they love sailing and they're respecting everyone who's involved in the chain. And yeah, the things cost a little bit more, but how often really do you, do you buy a bar exactly. of chocolate compared to how often do you buy, you know, wheat or something else like that? So it, there are gems of people who are doing amazing things. I will find 
the details of that shipping company and put it in the show notes because they um they inspire me with the work that they're doing on the ground locally you know we we advocate getting to know your farmer and taking the bulk of what you're bringing into your kitchen from local sources and finding out as much as you can about those sources how they're treating their animals how they're treating their land how they're um how they're sustaining their land and you know it feels to me like that's a a double a double-sided coin in a positive way because for me getting our meat from Flavio my farmer who's local he's doing amazing things with animals he's doing wonderful things to the land and but he's also part of our local economy you know so rather than me sending our money off to some unknown place uh, miles away from the town that I live in I'm circulating that money back round in my local economy and it feels to me very important to to give to my local community because if I don't it won't be there anymore you know and I enjoy mm-hmm. it I enjoy being in a vibrant community and so there's that side of it as well I know that he's raising the animals really well I know what he's feeding them I know that he's using that animal waste to keep the soil fertile and I actually know that one of the people at the market who sells vegetables not animals not animal produce is using Flavio's manure to fertilize his soil which is a vegetable only kind of outfit Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that just feels wonderful um because yeah that's the other thing I feel like is quite important you know if you're if you're buying produce that's not um from an animal we have all this information coming at us all the time about how topsoil is running out that the the food and agriculture organization tell us that you know in 50 60 years we could have no topsoil left and routinely we're using pesticides and fungicides to um, put onto our crops which are not only made from fossil fuels but they damage the environment they damage the soil they cause water problems and using animal fertilizer which comes naturally gives us gives to the soil you know you look at like white oak pastures and other farms who are actually Mm -hmm. creating carbon capture sites by using by farming animals in a a sustainable way and using that fertilizer and so in addition to when I when I shop in addition to looking for meat that comes from a source I'm happy with I think it's important for me to look at where my non-meat sources are coming from and how those companies are fertilizing their soil are they able to use animal waste to naturally regenerate the soil or do they have to rely on outside kind of fertilizers to keep that soil healthy Um, that kind of bit's hidden I think a bit more you know that the kind of the animal side and the um regenerative agriculture to do with animals I think has more coverage than looking at the okay so how are the people who aren't using animals fertilizing their soil because that's an important part of this question as well um yeah I don't quite know where I was going with that but that's how I feel about that's how I feel about that as well it's and it takes work like you said you know it it um 
it takes time to find the right suppliers. When we moved countries, it was hard work oh, yeah. finding places to, to go um, and find this stuff. And occasionally, sometimes it's more expensive. Sometimes it's not because I'm buying in bulk, for example. I'm buying my grains in bulk and it turns out to be not more expensive. But I put a, a strong value on, on that and, and my footprint. So I'm willing to, to give as much time as I can to trying to sort that out. And I feel like when you look at the future of our food world, the politicians who are in charge, they do what they need to do to keep themselves in power. And they do what they need to do to placate the people who are giving them money to fund what they're doing. And the people who are giving them money are usually the ones, you know, at the very 0.0001% of the population who are taking money in an industrial way from other people. And so they're going to push their interests on the politicians. The, the politicians here are not going to do anything. <laughs> That's how I feel. And... No. Someone has to. And so it's up to us to take responsibility. If as individuals we all took responsibility or half of us took responsibility just for half of what we bring into our kitchen, the politicians would have to change. The, the economy would have to change because we'd ask for it. And we're not doing that as much as I wish we were. And so... Yeah. I feel like taking responsibility, which is hard. And, you know, we've talked about this before in all parts of life, you know, taking responsibility for anything, for your health, for your family's education, you know, for, for everything you do is hard. It takes work. It takes making difficult decisions and making mistakes. Um, but if we want to see change in the, in the food world, we need to take action so that businesses and politicians listen, I think. Yeah. Well, I... I definitely agree that, well, I agree with everything you said, but um, there's there's no point in sitting and waiting as I think sometimes they do, you know, hoping that there'll be this top-down decision that's just going to fix things. And, you know, the government really just needs to make a rule that this, or the government really just needs to make it that that. But what we could do instead is say, well, corporations really, they really... Um, run to the tune of the consumer, right? So mm. rather than saying, oh, I, I think the government should force corporations to do this. Well, what if the consumer refused to participate in the game mm. and the corporations would have to change? That's kind of how we see it working over here. And you have to be careful because you say, oh, you know, if only the government would make it illegal to use such and so chemicals. Well, they didn't. And the, our government continues to allow all kinds of things that are banned everywhere else in the world but there's a lot of people who have gotten educated and choose to avoid them so what companies sometimes end up doing is just sort of slippery things like changing the wording or um yeah. you know making different marketing sort of gimmicks so that it looks like they're doing the right thing but when you're shopping with small local farms you're it's that kind of thing doesn't really happen like when you have a one company in in illinois or minnesota that has a product that's turning up in all 50 states 
there's not a whole lot of accountability. Like people aren't driving by the farm and being like, oh yeah, see, that's how they do it. But when you're just a small farm and you're working within your local economy, not only like you said with Flavio and his um, veggie neighbor, you know, not only are you having to find ways to survive with each other, but your customer, Allison, is right down the road and she's going to be here every Saturday and she's going to be like, what are you doing? You know, so uh, there's a different level of accountability. Joel Salatin actually talks about that a lot in his book, Your Successful Farm Business. In the last chapter, he talks about all the useless things that distract from real farming. And one of the things is certifications. And he's, he kind of argues that with um, when, when production was moved out of the village into centralized headquarters was when the government started coming in with certifications because there was no longer that sort of um, casual accountability that was required or that that turned up because you know Allison was just coming out to the farm on Saturday you know now Flavia was in Rome and she never saw him and she never she just had to take his word for it so then government certification started coming up right that's sort of the idea there um, and he argues that as we're moving back to all these little small farms and he says you know don't waste your time on the certifications and things like that he thinks there should be less regulation now because it's not as needed because you're literally walking out to the farm and you're like, I see how you're doing this process, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I agree with everything you just said as well. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like we're up so, in mind, Alison. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, uh, like, I, like I said at the beginning, our, our first kind of episode on this topic was coming at it from the supermarket angle and basically saying stop, stop, stop shopping at supermarkets. Whereas here we're coming at it from the kind of the local food angle. We do have an extra that we really want to share, which is support in this kind of journey. I did uh, an interview with Lindsay Miles, who has a website called Treading My Own Path. And I found her because she wrote an article several years back now on quitting supermarkets, a very, very detailed article. And I wanted to talk to her and get her experience on doing it. She's in Australia. She's originally English, but she's in Australia now. And just talk to her about how she did it, what advice she, she would give and hear her perspective. So I have we have an extra interview with her, which we are going to pop up on the main um, podcast feed in the next couple of days and in that interview Lindsay gives really some fabulous tips on how you can do do it step by step how you can move from supermarkets to um, local food and to independently source food without having to do it all at once and not being able to cope um, instead doing it in a way that creates sustainable habits and she covers lots of things like bulk buying and she, we talk about chocolate. There's lots and lots of really good and inspiring things in there. So keep your eye on the podcast feed over the next couple of days and that interview will go on and hopefully that will give even more inspiration to um, to help just move you, you know, mm -hmm. another step forward, hopefully. 
can I throw something in there, Allison? Yeah. This is it'll just can. it'll just be a tease because this is a topic that really needs its own podcast episode. But mm. you alluded to um, something that I actually have written on my notes here, which you use the phrase "the hidden cost." So I just wanted yeah. to say this is a conversation that is coming up. So Lexi messaged the other day, and she said, "My friend told me that um, eggs at the supermarket." not organic or anything like that, or $8 a dozen, which is pretty high compared to the average in that area. And Lexi said, but the eggs I'm getting from the farm haven't changed in price. They're still $5 a dozen. Now, just a little while ago, $5 a dozen that she was paying would be considered the high price. But now compared to the commercial brands, it's looking like the low price. So <laughs> it's worth noting and we've been saying this for a long time, and you can see all kinds, you know, all kinds of regenerative ag people, you know, Nicolette Han, Han Neiman or um, Tara Couture mm. or us or Joel Salton have been saying the actual cost of regenerative agriculture yeah. is less and it's sustainable cost, but it appears to be more expensive because the commercial things are so they're 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 such they're part of such a web that the cost that the consumer's paying at the supermarket looks so much lower but as soon as you don't have access to that cheap fertilizer from russia as soon as you don't have access to um you know cheap petroleum as soon as you don't have you name it whatever it is that is sustaining this unsustainable system from the outside then your costs shoot up and everybody sees that so um in my mind i think of it like a bank account and you both start out with the same amount of money but in a commercial operation you're basically just you're spending the money and unless you've got enough people going out and finding money to dump back into your account. You're, you're just hemorrhaging money constantly. Whereas in regenerative agriculture, you, you've got the same amount that you started out with, but then there's like this real gentle fiscal responsibility. Like we're not going to spend too much. We're going to let it gain some interest. We're going to go slow. We're going to invest it. It's returning on us now. Okay. Now we're earning a return. Like it just feels so different and it's so much more sustainable. So that's a topic for another day, but I wanted to just throw that out there. So if people are seeing things just absolutely skyrocket in the stores over here, a lot of areas you can go out to the small farms and the cost, the cost may be changing some because there are connected pieces, but by and large, it's not going to have such a radical shift. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, what you've said is certainly true, you know, and there's lots of information. I know on YouTube, there's lots of films on true cost accounting and people have done amazing work on that. And you said we're sustaining an unsustainable system. That's it in a, in a nutshell. The system is unsustainable and things are being done and being lost and whether it's habitats or communities or soil or insects, the cost is being paid somewhere. It really yeah. is. Yeah. Um, and it only it only appears to be sustainable because you're constantly having to patch the system like oh no, this, this entire industry is going over. Okay. Well, we need to make, um, uh, we have, we need to have a grant for this or a lobbyist for that mm. or <coughs> change the regulations on this or that, you know, 
you need to keep coming in and fixing and saving the system. Whereas mm. over here on the other side, regenerative agriculture just keeps chugging away with no input from the government, yeah. <laughs> with, you know, with no big systematic um, institutional support frameworks. And it just does its thing. It keeps ticking away. Yeah, completely. And I'm sure we'll dive into this more in, in coming episodes and interviews mm-hmm. with people because it's... Um, For sure. Yeah, it's a whole whole world of um, inequalities, for sure. Yeah. Let's um, let's go on to the other things we had on the list for oh, how to make dear. the kitchen more sustainable. <laughs> we did have some other things, didn't we? Buckle in. Um, so, yeah, um, we could – I can't really talk about compost. We had compost down there. So, obviously, you know, use as many kitchen scraps as you can. Make fruit scrap vinegar. Make – um, use your leftovers do as much as you can and compost if you can my garden is very small it's not really a garden it's a kind of patio area and it's I have a garden Allison it. stop it's, it's beautiful oh, yeah. a garden's got to have earth hasn't it it's got lots of I containers saw a lot in of it. earth in those pots <laughs> yeah it's got a lot of containers and it's got lots of things in it we can just about get to the get to the fence at the other side um, <laughs> so but pretty. I don't have room for compost so I do um, bakashi which is a Japanese technique where you ferment your waste so instead of putting it on the compost and leaving it for a very long time to turn into um, stuff to put on your garden I have two little kind of bucket setups in my kitchen and I use a brand that's been inoculated with lactobacilli and I put all my food scraps in there and I layer them with this bran and I can put things in there that I couldn't put in a compost. So I can, a little bit of oil can go in there, fine meat can go in there, bones can go in there. Lots of other things that you can't, cooked food that you can't put in compost. And that slowly ferments. It's got an airtight lid so the smell cool. doesn't cause a problem. I have a tap at the bottom and this thing called Bakashi tea comes out, which you can water down and feed your plants with. Or you can just put down the the drain, like your toilets or the sinks, because it's absolutely full Mm -hmm. of good bacteria. And why wouldn't you want to put good bacteria down a disgusting, dirty drain? (laughs) Absolutely. And then at the end of um, when when the bucket's full, I leave it for a couple of um, weeks and then at that point, it's ready to put into my soil. So I wanted to do this because I was fed up with the second year buying more and more bags of compost because the, the, the earth that I bought was spent because I'd had it in a container. And so last year, then I dug masses of this partially decomposed Bakashi compost into the existing soil that was in my containers. And then I left it over winter. And that has renewed my soil. And I know it's worked because I'm growing plants this year in the containers that I put eggshells and bits of bone and that's awesome. everything that all our waste in um, without having to buy a ton more bags of earth to, um, mm-hmm. to replace the old compost. And my plants are doing really well. Yeah, I love so um, if you don't have space for compost, that is a fun option that's really quite easy to set up. Um, yeah. Are you composting there, Andrea? Have you organized yeah, we, that? Yeah, we do have a compost um, pile. Um, most of our food scraps go to the birds, though. They ah, of course. absolutely yeah. love them. And then we basically harvest manure from the pens for the compost. Yeah. 
So a lot of okay. our um, nitrogen comes from the pens rather than from the food. Um, yeah, no, that makes sense. So our, our food is twice composted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's composted through the, the natural workings of a chicken. They wow, ferment it wow. and then we compost it. <laughs> nice, nice. Okay, and I wanted to talk about storage a bit because um, I've still got plastic storage things that I've yeah. had for a very long time, you know, like Tupperwares, plastic container boxes. And obviously, you know, I'm not just going to throw away my plastic um, food storage containers because they're plastic, because they're plastic. <laughs> so I'm using them to, <laughs> to their fullest, to the end of their life, you know. Um, as much as I can but then I'm replacing any of them with glass containers as much as I can Um, and I know we've talked before on on the main podcast but also on the Patreon podcast about freezing in glass and how we both do that and how particularly you've got loads of experience in that too to mean that you don't end up with smashed glasses everywhere do you want to talk a bit to that Oh, on I can't remember if we've covered specifically? it specifically. Yeah, the glass, the glass, and freezing oh. in them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, th- I feel. I feel like we did talk about this. Yeah. Because I remember I going remember into my Instagram though. and linking it. Um, uh, but I don't okay. remember which episode that was on. Gee. Well, if you know what, Allison, I'll I'll see if I can figure mm. it out and put it in the show notes so that somebody okay. wants to go back and hear more detail. But I'll just say that Thank I you. I store and freeze a lot in just canning jars. So. But there's a right way and a wrong way to do to freeze in them and you can break them. So go check that out. <laughs> okay. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. Um, the the other thing is I've tried to minimize my use of plastic wrap. I do still a bit, but I learned from I think it was Dan, Dan Leopard, um, that you can use damp tea towels to cover bread dough when it's fermenting. So you yeah. don't need to necessarily use um a plastic cover on that I know some people do have kind of silicon covers that they can use again and again mm. um or you can put it in some other kind of container that's got a lid so you don't have to worry about wrapping in plastic wraps yeah pretty much everyone knows about beeswax wraps they are quite expensive to buy but you can make them yourself you can buy that's some what linen told and cut me. it up I was like what yeah, and they are actually easy I thought when I first heard it I thought oh, I couldn't make that I'm you know I'm not really that way inclined I'd rather be ferment learning to ferment something I can't do that but there's a video on Ellie's channel second time I've mentioned mentioned Ellie today from (laughs) Ellie's every day that we will link where she just literally shows you you got some fabric you get some beeswax like this in little pellets you put it on your ironing board or on you know a flat surface you cover it so you're not going to get beeswax all over your iron and then you iron it on and it just creates a beeswax yeah. wrap for you. And then if it starts to break down after several months, you can add more beeswax on. You know, you can start again mm-hmm. kind of thing. So you don't have to pay through the nose to buy beeswax wraps. You can make them yourself. You and can we'll, pay through the nose for yeah. beeswax and you do can it yourself. You <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can. yeah, exactly. Um, and then other kind of cleaning things. Um, we keep all old... Um, t-shirts and pieces of fabric and try to make them into cloth towels rather than use paper paper towels and as much as possible I'm trying to use natural cleaning products firstly because there's no chemicals in them and I don't want the chemicals on my surfaces or on my hands or on Gabriel's hands or Mm -mm, cups mm -mm. he drinks out in the air yeah exactly but also I um 
I don't want the plastic bottles that they come in in my house either and I don't want to bring more plastic into into the world so um I use bicarbonate of soda quite a lot and vinegar and lemon and there are tons of resources online for how to make natural cleaning products do you use oils in yours Andrea because I know um you use a lot of oils and I wonder if you add them to your cleaning products yeah we do just for the you know the cleaning benefits of it and I like it to smell nice and we get a blend that we make a cleaner out of it does come in a plastic bottle but the one bottle refills our glass one like hundreds of times so um, it doesn't feel wasteful to me um it's like my trade-off and I love it because it smells good (laughs) and on um the storage thing when you were talking about plastic that this goes for the Mm. cleaning like we use the thieves cleaner um and this goes for the plastic and this goes for the uh you know using the towels for your dough a lot Mm. of the reasons why I started doing these things initially was because I didn't have the money to buy plastic wrap I couldn't just buy something that was going to go in my kitchen and get thrown away then of course I started learning about oh you know, plastic and the more flexible the plastic is, the worse it is and all these things. Um, I learned about that later, but I had already stopped using plastic for so long and or plastic wrap for so long, just because I was like, I, I'm not going to spend money on that, you know? And when I was making dough and I first would think every, every recipe says, you know, cover it tightly with plastic wrap. And I would think I don't have plastic wrap, but then I would think, well, I'm pretty sure people have been making bread for a lot longer than we've had plastic wrap. Yeah. So there has to be a way around this, right? And I would just do, like you said, I would get a, a tea towel wet and drape it over the top. Um, if it was a really long ferment, then sometimes change the towel mm-hmm. <laughs> multiple yeah. times. And also I have a couple big, like you said, Tupperware containers that I still have. Um they're my grandma's and now they're, they're my mom's and now they're mine (laughs) and they have lids. So I can put pretty big batches of dough in those and let them rise with the lid. But yeah, I haven't had to use plastic for um, rising dough in, you know, 14 years, 15 years or whatever, however long since I got married, 14 years, 13 years. (laughs) I can't do math. (laughs) I think that what you said, you know, you, you kind of get used to it. So once you haven't had yeah. plastic wrap for a yeah. few months, six months, you kind of think, oh, I don't want plastic wrap anymore. You, It feels like alien. I felt that around going into supermarkets. You know, when I haven't been into a supermarket for four or five months and, and suddenly I have to go into one for some reason, everything around me just, just seems so alien and wrong. And and little steps like, you know, getting rid of the cling film, um, mm-hmm. build habits that once you've done them for a few months – you can't, you don't want to go back. You, it's fine. You've, yeah. you've kind of made it part of who you are. I also, right. yeah, you talking about the bread and um, you think, you know, people have been making bread for centuries and yet we haven't had plastic wrap for centuries. It kind of goes back to what we said at the beginning, you know. Exactly. Let's look at what <laughs> our grandmothers did and try to replicate that where we can because, you know, they haven't been all the technology there hasn't been all the plastic there haven't been kind of um all the plastic bags and plastic tupperwares and everything else they're just 50 60 70 years ago these things weren't around and yet people ate really well right you know Uh, they ate the food that was around them and they cooked they cooked it 
And, you know, when they had enough, they ate well. So mm-hmm. it's possible without this all around us. It's just what we've got used to. And then we can yeah. get unused to it. <laughs> if unused mm-hmm. to it is a phrase, mm-hmm. I don't know, but we can. Okay. Um, is there anything else we want to add to the kind of kitchen and cleaning storage Like section? to basic basic tools list? Yeah. Honestly, if you just do things from the perspective of saving money, you like automatically yeah. get there. <laughs> You're like these these kitchens that I visited in Russia. They had you know the one plastic bag that they shopped with that they'd probably been using for five years. That literally they would sit at the table at night and were like patching the bag, right? Because they're not gonna buy another bag. They're like, no, this is my bag. I'm not buying another one. Are they saying, I'm trying to save the planet? Not particularly. They just didn't want to spend the money on another bag. And that's like me with plastic wrap or with paper towels. We stopped, we never bought paper towels really since we got married, just because it's like seemed like a wasteful expense when I could just use a towel to clean something. Now I Mm -hmm. did start buying paper towels for cleaning the hip camp stuff recently because it just felt I didn't want to (laughs) clean those bathrooms and then bring the towels down and mix it into our stuff. I thought Mm -hmm. I should probably try to be sanitary and and I use gloves and stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. um so I buy paper towels for that. But that's like a business expense, I guess. (laughs) So it feels different. Mm -hmm. But in the house, it's just like no way, no way. And then we when we after after I clean with the paper towels up there, then I go out behind this the sauna and stick them in the sauna fire. Oh, yeah. Okay. But yeah. yeah, the less that you have that's disposable, like you said, um, just the more likely you are to be more sustainable. Yeah, you know, completely. It's, it's not it's not like a 100% guarantee, you know, because you can be using some kind of crazy lead tool or whatever. But just generally speaking, the, the less disposable you have, yeah, the more sustainable. And the more money I'll save. (laughs) Yeah, which is very important because we want to use the money that we do have to have the most valuable life that we can. And by lard. To do things that mean. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, buy lard, make lard. (laughs) You've got money, buy some lard. Okay. So the last thing I wanted to kind of say then was that in my experience kind of on this journey, I've often felt like I'm the only one. You know, luckily, when I connect Mm -hmm. with you and I connect with podcast listeners and when I go on to Instagram, you know, I've got a crowd around me that is very supportive. But sometimes when I stumble across some other kind of media or I go out into the real world (laughs) and I look Uh around me, Uh I think, oh, my gosh, (laughs) (laughs) Am am I the only one doing this? I feel so kind of disheartened and and alone it's it's easy for me to be saddened and discouraged and so I just wanted to to leave people listening with the the thought that even if sometimes you might feel like you're the only one know that you aren't um Mm -hmm. there are there's us two for a start (laughs) there's a lot more people you know there are people writing about this there are people encouraging about this there are people who've published books on it there are many people working their backs off to raise animals in a way that is sustainable there are many people who've dedicated Mm -hmm. their entire lives to this so 
know that you're not alone and if you need support go find them to be around to to help you feel (laughs) okay about it so yeah that's it you kind of (laughs) you kind of are the only one in some ways Allison you're kind of an outline in a lot of ways, but you know, we're, we're your squad. <laughs> Thank you. You keep me going. That's for sure. I am. And, and yeah, likewise. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm trying just like we all are, you know, Rebecca said, um, uh, the, um, on a humble life, she was saying, sometimes I don't think that what we're doing is that different until then they're talking to somebody else. Yeah. And then, and then they're, Everybody goes, oh, you what? And then she goes, oh, yeah, okay, I guess we are. A little... You just get really used to it. Um, like when people come over and they look for the microwave and I'm like, oh, sorry, we don't have a microwave. Yeah, and I forget about you that. Know? I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. oh, obviously, we haven't had a microwave for 20 years. We're just like, yeah. oh, people still use microwaves, do they? I forgot Th- about that. Is that still a thing? Do they still use microwaves? Do they still smoke? Like what? Yeah. <laughs> well, Rebecca, Rebecca said, because um, I, I was telling her, sometimes I just feel like, like I'm, I'm not, well, sometimes I feel like I'm not perfect. I feel like I'm not doing all the things. I'm not doing everything that I could be. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm yeah. not there, yeah. you know? And she said, well, I think if you feel like you haven't arrived, that's, that's probably a good, that's thing, a good thing, you know, <laughs> like yeah. you, you know, stay humble as her Instagram handle kind of indicates. Mm-hmm. But also um, she said, you know, again, you don't realize what you're doing because you're just so used to it. Yeah. And yeah, I think, I think that it, would be... that's important. Sorry, I'm talking over you. I wanted to say that <laughs> it's hard on Zoom. very often, very often. <laughs> I think we think I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. And yeah. it's easy to, to beat ourselves up for it. I do that. And I know many people I've spoken to feel that. But know that if, if you're doing what feels right to you and what you can manage, then you are doing enough. And if you're yeah. listening to this, then you know you're you're reaching out for community and support and encouragement to move forward, and that's what we all need, you know. Yeah. So, and don't you, have a go at yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you um, you can beat yourself up about, up about it, but I also noticed that there's people on the internet that will beat you up for it too. So, <laughs> yeah. I've so, met some of them. <laughs> so gotta watch out for that. Um, but I like like you kind of mentioned with Lindsay and then like you Mm. alluded to here a few times on here if you just if you go at all this from the guilt perspective and you're just like oh oh my gosh I'm just I'm killing the planet and then you try to change everything all at once you're gonna have this catastrophic um implosion and if you what is sustainable since that's the theme of this podcast is to make gradual changes and to still allow yourself like if if you say i can't not have the paper towels like you know mm. i i have um you know m- maybe you have a unique circumstance like like i i have an ad- adult child in in diapers for whatever reason and i need to keep cleaning things with the paper towels. Yeah, you do that. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you've got mm-hmm. that situation and it, it, I'm sorry, if somebody's going to judge you for that, they can just walk the other way right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, but we're saying like, do the things you can do and not feel, not feel that like, like, because 
like you said with the staples, I'm buying the bulk of my food around here. I don't feel bad at all about getting coffee shipped in. I love that luxury. Mm. I think it's fantastic. Um, I, I like having peppercorns. <laughs> I like having mm. vanilla. You know, those things don't grow around here. <laughs> mm. But I enjoy those luxuries. But I don't feel like they're the bulk of what's happening for me. Yeah, I agree. And I think just one more thing I want to add, <laughs> which is do it, do the bits that you do because you love them, you know, and, and I, when I'm sourcing my grains for my bread, yeah. I love making bread. I love sourdough. I love using Italian mm. grains for it. And I love using Italian grains from people who have grown them decently. I love Flavio, you know, yeah. <laughs> obviously I have a husband, <laughs> but you know, I just, he's so full of life and his yeah. place is amazing. I love the work that he's doing. And that's why and when I when I interact with him, when I interact with those grains, it fills me. It brings me joy. I do it because I love it. And that's Absolutely. a whole different thing to the guilt. And and that's what guides me. And I think that's the steps to take, the steps that bring you joy and that you love. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. I love it, Alison. <laughs> okay, I well, think we're done, yeah? All right. Well, for now. now. <laughs> Look out for the extra episode coming in a couple of days. And, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and we'll, we'll speak again soon. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram, Andrea's at Farm and Hearth and Allison's at Ancestral underscore Kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen. Bye.